Hey, so y'all heard the, the story this week um, that Trump claims that he met with the president of the Virgin Islands this That's week. you, you dipshit. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Trending Left. Uh, I'm Andrew Herrera. I'm Samuel Birdsall. I'm Marco Wajardo. And I'm Nicholas Cobb. All right, so we're gonna go ahead and get into the slew of tabloid-style news stories we have <laughs> for you guys this week. Um, when I was going back and looking at everything that we wanted to talk about, I was just astounded about how much had happened this week, and it doesn't even feel like seven days anymore, you know, from show to show. No. Just the amount of crap. <laughs> just, the thing, just everything the, is everything is getting so nonlinear. The things that happen the Monday after the show, like I end up forgetting they even happen exactly. when we record no. the next yes. show. It's ridiculous. Me too. And, and to start off on all of this, we have what's being called the most expensive publicity stunt in history. Uh, Mike Pence was <laughs> ordered by Trump to leave an NFL football game early because oh they God. knew that the players were going to kneel for the national anthem. How do you guys feel about that? Oh my God. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I mean, frankly, Pence has always been one of those people who likes to grandstand and just uh, that he would use taxpayer money to, you know, support such a pointless gesture and something that's really, frankly, completely against our First Amendment rights. Like, we all have the freedom of speech. The NFL players have union rights that say that they can do these kind of things to try to help affect um, other, well, I'm going to call it. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's just a weak political <laughs> stone overall, really. Yeah, look, throughout all of this, it's important to remember the juxtaposition of when conservatives decry liberals that, you know, we want to fight intolerance and fight, you know, how things are being talked about, you know, quote-unquote political correctness. They say, well, liberals are snowflakes. They need to man up and, you know, learn that this is the real world and learn how to take a message and grow a spine. I mean, this is Mike Pence leaving a football game, you know, presumably, presumably, like, he would, he was there to watch the football game, but he left because he did not like, you know, the politically incorrect protest that the football players were doing. It's, I mean, it's absolutely hypocritical, and it kind of shows who the real snowflakes are. I mean, just the idea that Trump called Pence into the White House one day and was like, Mike, I get the best <laughs> job for you. <laughs> and just, like, ordered him it's to, SNL. ordered him to get, go cross-country. You know, to this football game, and he's like, "You're gonna walk. You're gonna be there for five minutes." And Mike Pence is like, "I'm not even there for the first quarter." Like, <laughs> we have become the poor man's SNL. It's just, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. I mean, I, I think that the idea of the stunt is actually pretty powerful. I just think the idea—it's kind of diminished for them because all these details came out that he was ordered to do it. Yeah. So it kind of—it kind of just seems like Trump's lapdog. There's no you know? moral outrage. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's what's planned. Yeah. Okay. No. So the next story we have for you guys um, is equally just flabbergasting. Um, Trump was defending his throwing of paper towels at hurricane survivors in Puerto God. Rico. Ugh. And this is, this is a direct quote from him. He said this to Mike Huckabee during an interview. Mm -hmm. uh, they had these beautiful soft towels, very good towels. Well, I feel like that's a metaphor for how Trump is treating Puerto Rico. He's just throwing nonsense at them. Like how you see from his tweets like, oh, Puerto Rico always wants this, always wants this. Um, it's just ludicrous. I think Trump has never seen a paper towel in his life. And that's <laughs> he was astounded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, wow, I didn't know towels could be this slim, but this soft also. Because, I mean, let's be honest, Trump has probably used like actual towels and just throwing them away after using them for just once. I, I think he thinks a lot of it is like a publicity stunt where like he's, he's giving out something to these people and they have to be grateful to the United States and therefore him. We saw videos of him after the Hurricane Harvey stuff where he's like loading up one you know, pallet or, you know, one of those little boxes with the plastic wrap on top of water bottles, you know, like the back of a truck, truck and being like, good job, everyone. Like, okay, yeah, it's a symbolic thing. It's for a nice picture and things like that. But I mean, it's just, at the end of the day, it's just him parading around being like, aren't you guys glad I'm here? Like, are you happy? And like, also, no. like, is the disaster area over? Like, are we done? Like, can I go home now? Like, can y'all like be better off now? Like, this is a multi-year effort that it's going to take to not just like rehabilitate Houston and parts of Louisiana, like Puerto Rico is, you know, still U.S. territory, and it's going to take longer to rehabilitate that area because it's, you know, it's harder to get supplies to and from. It's a lower developed 
region of the country. It's often forgotten. It's and very all the debt, right? Yes, yeah, and all the in Puerto Rico's debt, and it's very easy for Congress to forget to appropriate funds or to think or to expend those uh, um, to expel those funds because it's a scenario that's not often talked about. In general, he just because he's not a politician, he doesn't have an idea of the time horizons of legislative priorities and things like that. He doesn't understand that it takes time to get things done. Of course. Often that, that, that sucks in politics, but mm -hmm. it's, the, it's just a reality of living in a democracy. Yeah. You have dissent, you have veto players in, in a democracy. He just thinks that everything should be able, like whenever he was you know, in business, to just be signed away, and then you know someone, t like a contractor, takes care of it. But that's not how it goes in, in politics. You have to work with people, you have to get things done. And in relief efforts and things like this, I mean, obviously they should be non-political, but there's still a lot of people who will deny you funding for something like we're seeing with the Hurricane Harvey stuff because they were denied funding for Hurricane Sandy. Right. So there's a lot of politics that interplays with that. And he's like, you know, why can't we just fix this right away? Well, because one, the United States has mistreated these places for a long time. And because of a lack of infrastructure investment from us, it's going to take even longer now to rebuild. So I just think it shows an ignorance once again on his part, along with the Virgin Islands thing, along with, you know, all, all this stuff. Like, he doesn't understand the history between the United States and these territories. He just doesn't know because he hasn't taken the time to learn it. He didn't know it before running for office. It's just ignorance. Cool. So we have the Harvey Weinstein stuff that has recently uh, come out. All of these. Gracious. I don't want to say the allegations because I, obviously they have proof. You know, they've, they've come out with recordings so and stuff that they've, they've caught on sting operations. Um... How do you guys feel that this kind of reflects just like general misogyny and like sexual objectification in the media? And, and yeah, I feel like it's disappointing because I've seen videos and stuff. They've been making jokes about Harvey Weinstein, uh, perhaps, or definitely being a sex someone who does sexual assault for like years and years. Like there's old clips everywhere, and they've and parodies and stuff. So you know, it's kind of a shame that you know that consistently you see in Hollywood and just everywhere in general that. When, that people who are being sexually assaulted aren't getting justice and if they do it takes years and years and years like you saw that with Bill Cosby like the allegations were big in 2005 and I, like, <laughs> and I think I remember even seeing that but it, it, it totally went away faded into the ether until uh, Hannibal Burris fired up in his, in his comedy sketches again and then people were like yeah whatever happened to that so you know it's, it's just a shame that this happens so often with sexual assault cases well Cosby didn't even get convicted right no he didn't yeah like i mean even when these allegations and massive amounts of proof come out they're still not taken seriously they're constantly victim blamed mm -hmm. and it's exceptionally difficult for women to receive justice in the first place even when the preponderance of evidence is on their side so democrats have been quick to disavow uh, Weinstein and to say, you know, this money that I have, I'm going to give it back. I'm going to donate it to other charities. I'm not going to take money from this guy or his conglomerate or, you know, whatever, you know, businesses he's associated with. And that's good, right? Like, that's exactly the response we want from Democrats because, yes. I mean, let's face it, the Democratic Party receives a lot of donations and a lot of money from Hollywood and Hollywood elites, which, I mean, depending on your stance, you know, it's fine or it's not fine, but like, it's, you know, it, we have to recognize that that's an industry that, that's an industry that disproportionately supports Democrats, and we have to hold them accountable, right? We have to hold them accountable like Republicans did not hold, don't hold people like Trump accountable or Roger Ailes accountable. Mm -hmm. And I think that the response from, from you know, Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, I read an article today that said that you know, she received you know, something like $10,000 from Harvey Weinstein. She's going to donate that to a women's charity, which is great, right? You know, she's not going to keep that money because, you know, it's, it's not, it's tainted money. Obviously, exactly. we cannot forget... You know, the language of rape culture, words like alleged and claimed and, and whatnot, are just used to discredit, uh, you know, potent people, potential victims. Um, so it's important to remember that as we read the news and, you know, it's good that he's getting, they're being disavowed and just sort of, you know, disconnected from Hollywood culture. So the next article, um, Trump thinks he invented the word fake. Oh my I, gosh. I what? actually think, and maybe maybe this is just me not having read like a, a ton of you know the story on this, because I don't think there really is that much of a story, to be honest. I think it's just tabloid, you know, MSNBC like clickbait stuff. I think I think he was actually like trying to in his third grader vocabulary say that like he invented the term fake news, which I, I mean Which is also not true. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't yeah. know. It's just ridiculous. No, I mean, fake news has been around since before Trump. Like the terminology has been around. Mm -hmm. He obviously gravitated toward it because it was a very hot and he like buzzwordy. Yeah, 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 it's yeah, it's a very it's a very buzzwordy term, and but he used that 
to, you know, basically any media that he doesn't like is fake news. You know, mm-hmm. that's your CNNs and WAPOs and NYPs. Something, something I wanted to draw into this as far as, like, First Amendment stuff, the press, um, I, I don't know exactly who it is, but I, I saw an article saying a Republican legislator has issued a bill right now that is going to require that um, that members of the press will have to like contract themselves through the police departments and provide fingerprints and stuff like that. And his justification was, well, if you're going to regulate my Second Amendment right, I'm going <laughs> to regulate your First Amendment right. What? Which is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Here, yeah. Here's the difference. Um, <laughs> freedom of speech doesn't instantly it doesn't kill people. It doesn't kill people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's yeah, the I'm, difference. And that's just more instances of the Trump administration just really suppressing the press. Like you saw for a while that they weren't doing videos of these, uh, of the White House press secretary and all the news people. And then they banned some people from, was it the New York Times? And who else? CNN? Yeah, CNN. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So, you know, clearly Trump... And they give press... acting like an enemy of the press press right now. They Wars, it's Breitbart, and things like that. I mean, it's just... It's ridiculous. This is a, this is also just a problem with the Republican Party in general. Earlier, uh, mid-last year, we saw that pe- the ilk, people like Paul Ryan and his ilk were shutting down C-SPAN because they didn't like that like House Democrats were staging that sit-in for gun control. And they were, you know, C-SPAN has a right to be there. C-SPAN has a right to, you know, record the, the proceedings of Congress. It's important for the American people to be able to see that sort of thing. And it was a major moment. It was a major event. And Republicans are shutting down. You know, they're just shutting down freedom of speech. Okay, so with... Uh... Trump using language like the press being the enemy of the people that harkens back to the era of, say, Nazi Germany. That was one of the ways they attacked the press to try to consolidate it and bring it into, under their control. That kind of rhetoric is a direct indication of approaching authoritarianism. Exactly. And if something isn't done about it and if Republicans don't stand up to it, then we could face some... Um, even more trying times as a nation, to put it lightly. Yep. I, re- I really wouldn't call it approaching authoritarianism. I think Trump is an authoritarian. Mm-hmm. I'm not fully at the level of wanting to call him a fascist yet. I think he's getting close to that too. But, I mean, wanting to shut down the press, advocating to have military like personnel and vehicles like marching through the streets like they do on Bastille Day in France, saying that you know oh, we need to be a strong country again by advocating only for American interests, that's nationalism. I think that he's at authoritarianism right now. If he goes any further, we're going to see something very scary that I don't think we've ever seen before. So next one, yet another mind-boggling story. Um, in an interview, Trump says that he has a higher IQ than Rex Tillerson, <laughs> the Secretary of State, and this is in response to Rex Tillerson um, having reportedly calling, you know, having, having called Trump a effing moron. So, I mean. This paired not with, untrue words, Rex Tillerson. Not this, untrue. This this paired with another story that came out uh, on Wednesday, and the tagline is "White House in Crisis?" Question yeah. mark. Um, Trump yes. is reported yes. having said <laughs> having said to his previous um, security, uh, the head of his security detail, who was also the head of his security detail in, in the private sector, and he kind of carried over to the White House. He doesn't work there anymore. Um, he's reported having said to this man, I hate everyone in the White House. Yeah, I feel that. So yeah, I, I do too. Don't I worry mean, about it. We've, <laughs> we've seen the infighting get to the point where people, um, you know, like Priebus are out, you know, mm-hmm. Bannon is out. How do you guys feel like the state of the White House is right now as far as like the infighting goes? Like we're not seeing as much about a lot of people like Kushner anymore. Um, we're seeing a lot of stories still coming up about Manafort and people like that that are already out of the White House. But it seems like at least outwardly it's kind of calmed down a little bit. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah, I mean, there's, there aren't, you know, as major firings as there were just a couple months ago when, you know, Scaramucci was out, Spicer was out, Priebus was out, you know, people like Kelly, John Kelly were in, Sarah Huckabee Sanders were in, you know, yeah. we, we are at a point where I'm not sure, and like Sebastian Gorka is also out as well, that was yeah. I think last month, <clears throat> we're at a point where I think we can confidently say that the wings vying for power in the White House, you know, right now it's like the more establishment, quote unquote, moderate Republican you know, wing is kind of in and like in control, but that can sway violently at really at Trump's whim. You know, he has the power to fire and hire anyone really who he wants, because like none of these are Senate confirmable, obviously. You know, and it, when it comes to like his cabinet, we haven't had any uh, major firings, if I recall Price. correctly. Maybe like like Price. Oh, that's right. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. No, that's right. No, that's <laughs> right. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like Price. That was last week. <laughs> totally forgot about that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Totally forgot about that. It's been a week, all right? Um, but like. You know, until we start seeing, like, Rex Tillerson out, people like Scott Pruitt out, for whatever reason, Steve Steve Mnuchin, like, you know, I don't know that we can call the White House in disarray because 
internally, like the staff has just been a bit more constant lately. But I think like the talk right now really has been Trump versus his cabinet versus Trump versus his staff. And I, and I think a lot of it is him playing with legislators too. We saw Bob Corker and him kind of have a Twitter, yeah. Twitter beef. Um, that's not the first time he's attacked Bob Corker four times now. Corker uncorked. <laughs> four times now on Twitter. I think it's just what a lot of aides have come out, you know, saying people who are close to the president, you know, that he's unhinged, that at times, like, he just violently swings into moods. He mm-hmm. gets petulant anytime he hears any sort of bad press, you know. They've, they've come out with stories saying that they have to give him, like, positive news in the mornings. Like, it is someone's job to find articles that praise Trump and, like, present him with it, like, with his morning... Yeah, his cabinet out. meetings are like, like that. His cabinet meetings yeah, are nothing but, like, you know, him, like, you know, stroking his ego. Yeah, so, so, so maybe like. the White House isn't, like, in shambles, but I think we can definitely say that it's in disarray, that it's, it's an unhealthy administration. And I think it's been that way from the get-go. But I think we're seeing it calm down outwardly, but I'm still worried because we still have figures like Stephen Miller, who have nationalist yeah. views on the inside. Um, we don't know who's possibly going to be appointed next. I mean, you know, he could bring on Kid Rock as his special advisor for foreign affairs or something like that. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, for all we know. It's, it's so hard to say at this point because Trump is so unpredictable. Um, and I honestly, I don't know if we're going to get a better outcome if someone like Mnuchin is fired, if someone like Pruitt is fired. I think we'll just get the same old person. Probably worse. Pretty much, or yeah. probably worse, right. you know, so it's, at this point, I think it's resisting those white nationalist archetypes within the, within the White House, and that's the most important thing. I feel like if those people got fired, at least they wouldn't, the replacements wouldn't be as corporatist, though. Nah, I think they would still. Be no, corporate. they'd be corporatists. There's in a, a reason. Way. There's a reason that those the Trump people. Administration. Let's be honest. There's a reason that those people were appointed in the first place, and it's because a lot of them gave money to his campaign or his friends who wanted tax cuts. And I think that he's just going to find another. You know, he always talks about how he knows so many people. He knows so many good guys, so many friends. He's just going to find them all over again. All right. So the next story we have: uh, Trump recently signed an executive order on health care. Um, overhauling yeah. a lot of the Obamacare marketplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of states that have sued in response to this executive order, stating that um, Trump, and, and also the subsequent announcement that he's going to be cutting a lot of the Obamacare subsidies to help out low-income families and low-income insure, insurees. Um, we've had a lot of, I think it's 16 states maybe? 19, uh, I want to say. 19, okay. Yeah. That may have, that have sued him in response to this. How do you guys feel like about this right off the get-go? I mean, just the idea of dismantling the Obama legacy and cutting healthcare and yet saying you're making it better? Yeah, so Trump, before he came into office, loved to say Obamacare is broken, Obamacare, you know, is about to explode, implode, you know, insert destructive metaphor here. And the fact of the matter is, while Obamacare has its faults and many counties in the country are still with just one provider, um, it used to be the case that there were counties without any providers. I don't think that's the case anymore. But Obamacare has been, you know, fairly stable and fixes would have been enacted if we had elected Hillary Clinton into office. But Trump is undermining Obama. Trump undermining Obamacare is not the same as, you know, Trump accusing Obamacare of being faulty because it would not have been faulty as faulty otherwise. So if Trump wants to go out there on the stump and say Obamacare is imploding, is failing, that's because you are making it worse. And if people are dying, it's because you created exceptions for people with pre-existing conditions, where now certain you know con- you know certain health insurance contracts do n- no longer have to are required by a lot of cover or to not be discriminatory towards people with uh, pre-existing conditions. So that's your fault. Well, okay. and, and we know he wants it to fail because they've cut massively the budget that went towards funding advertisements for Obamacare. Right. They don't want people on it. They don't want it to succeed. They don't want it to seem like it's working because then people won't vote you know in favor of people who want to keep the system. Essentially, exactly. Essentially, it just goes back to this sort of newer Republican mindset of just forget about doing anything good, just go against Obama. Yep. Plain and simple. So so something I made a Facebook post on the day of, because I was really interested and I wanted to hear people's thoughts on this question. I think this is going to be at least brought up in, in the courts as unconstitutional. And the reason is because Congress is given the power to regulate health care you know, nationwide or mm-hmm. through marketplaces because of the Commerce Clause. Right. But you have a president who, through an executive order, I feel is overriding Congress's authority by establishing markets across state lines. So I was really interested in that because this, exactly what they're doing, like letting people establish basically like collectives where they combine together to form risk pool type things, um, that's Rand Paul's idea. He literally wrote a bill about this. He wrote a bill about, you know, what, what Trump was calling during the debates, the lines around the states, right? right. Making it easier for people to buy insurance. 
This is literally just Rand Paul's bill. That's why he was there, standing behind Trump. I don't know yeah, if you guys... and, and, Rand, and Rand Paul's been with Trump on like certain trips within the country this week as well. And so that's why I'm, I'm wondering if there were members of the party, maybe including Rand Paul, who said, oh yeah, we're going to do this the right way, the constitutional way, and put a bill forward. The bill gains no traction because, frankly, and it's, all, it's an awful bill. Yeah. And then they say, well, you know, screw it. We'll just have Trump, you know, sign it into law. He's done that with every other major thing that we've done in the last six months. Yeah. So I'm wondering if the reason that they proposed it as a bill first and then did this is because it failed and they just decided, you know, we'll, you know, screw legality. We'll just do it unconstitutionally. Yeah. Again, last person in the room has Trump's sway and like mm -hmm. Trump's legislative authority. You know, if we were if we were cautiously optimistic that the Democrats would be able to go in there and sweet talk him, you know, not for longer than two or three days. I'm also interested in, in what he's giving um, Congress in response to this, because it wasn't a very popular bill. Obviously, the idea of it is kind of popular um, as far as like be across state lines is like free market out the wazoo. Yeah. But the whole like risk pool thing is a little is something that I don't think that McConnell really supported. So I'm really interested in seeing like going forward from here. What did Trump give them? in response to like them not completely decrying the fact that he's signing this order, like if that makes sense. Yeah, highly doubt it. Trump has blindsided, you know, Senate and, <laughs> and House Republicans in the past. I don't see how it is more likely that Trump called Mitch McConnell, called Paul Ryan and said, look, I'm gonna pass this thing, you know, here's your heads up and you know, you guys have to give me something, I'll give you something or whatever. Like I, I doubt that's the case. To be fair, it'd be really bad optics for the Republican party to be like, oh man, how dare you do something that messes up Obamacare after they've been screaming bloody murder at Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but it also depends on which Republican senator you are. If you're Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski, then you will say, wait, this isn't like helping Obamacare. You know, because people like Collins and Murkowski, like they don't love Obamacare, but they realize that like it's the system that is in place. And if you're going to improve it slash eliminate it, then you have to do it the right way or do it in a more bipartisan way, quote unquote. So like, if you're a Republican, if you're a single Republican senator, then yeah, maybe you would decry that sort of thing. So, all right, well, that's plenty on healthcare, I think. Yeah. Uh, next story, um, you guys saw Eminem's, like, yeah. his, his freestyle rap about Trump. How do you guys feel about that? As far as like, freedom of expression and stuff like that? I mean, I actually didn't see it, but I love Eminem. Like, I've always, uh, like for example, his raps against Bush. Um, I think there was like Mosh, for example. <laughs> yeah. um, I've always been really appreciative of his willing to use his celebrity status and his also, I have a true appreciation of his lyrical ability. Unlike Kanye, he is actually a real a lyrical genius. Whoa, <laughs> whoa, 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 okay, this is not a music discussion podcast, <laughs> yeah. but if you think Kanye doesn't have lyrical ability, I think you and I need to step outside and have a little chat, okay? I'm not saying he doesn't have ability, I'm just saying he doesn't have genius. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, so, so hot t I, want, I want a hot take for everybody on the floor right now. Yes. Eminem versus Kid Rock in the Michigan Senate race. <laughs> Are we okay with this or not okay oh with this? Oh, God, no. <laughs> yeah, that's what I've been hearing. No, but on a more serious note, you know, Eminem is a guy with a fan base that is not, you know, mostly these kinds of people, but there's a significant amount of them are like the people that, oh, I hate rap. But I love Eminem, right? You hate rap because you hate black people. Okay, let's let's just yeah, <laughs> let's let's, let's, not, let's not mince words here. Okay, um, so for Eminem to come out and like disavow like his racist fans or people that that are his fans and also fans of Trump, and he's saying get away from me, I don't want you to be my fan. You know that's that's a swing in the right direction. It, it's always been clear to me that Eminem is I don't say, I don't call him a progressive guy, but he's always been anti-Republican. You know and as of late, been advocating for more social causes, social justice causes, and like for him to come out and like do this sort of thing, it, it's good, right? Obviously, mm -hmm. it doesn't excuse like some of his very, very foul homophobic language in the past, yeah. but yeah. you know we can look at this and say, you know, we can always acknowledge when people have changed, and it's pretty clear that he has changed a lot and has matured a lot. I mean, he is like a forty-five-year-old guy now, so for him to come out and do this, use his star power, as Sam said, to advance a you know rightful political message, you know that that's good. That's good in my view. And last story for the pod this week, uh, we have the Iran deal stuff that's going on right now. Mm -hmm. Trump's been criticizing it heavily. Tillerson has differed with him and said that he wants us to stay in, that its, it's net benefits are positive. Uh, have you guys heard any coverage about this? Yeah. Do you, you want to talk about it? <laughs> well, I guess Tillerson has the higher IQ then. <laughs> I mean, I think we could guess that right off the bat, okay? He did go to the University of Texas at Austin. Ooh. Oh, man. 
I have such pride right now. <laughs> Sam is actually wearing his UT hat and UT shirt and matching orange shoes, so he does, yeah. But do you want to talk what, about what you were reading, Sam? Um, so there's an interesting disparity between how Trump handled the Iran deal where he kicked it to Congress and what he did with the other major policy implementation with healthcare, where on one hand he's like, oh, I'm going to do this all on my own. And then with the Iran deal, he basically just kicked it to Congress. I mean, because he doesn't have, it's a, it's a bilateral treaty, so he doesn't have the authority by himself yeah. to, to override it. Congress is have authority there as well. And so we've seen like the, like the EU representatives come out and say like, the US is not gonna withdraw from this. I don't care what they're saying. Like, right. It's too important, you can't do it. I think there are I mean, legal it's, it's boundaries. It's a UN, yeah, right. a UN resolution. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's not something that it was just us and Iran. It was us and the entire security council. Yeah, and it's becoming like just increasing. Trump, Trump doesn't understand that. He thinks that everything's like a real estate deal where you just like, you know, like, oh, we signed a crime contract, but I'll just get my lawyer on it. You know, no, right. that's not how it works. It's also becoming like increasingly clear that like, Iran hasn't done anything heinous since no, the passing of the deal. Been. You know, like it's every month that like, or I think the the checks for like to their nuclear capabilities are like quarterly. Don't please correct me if I'm wrong. Don't quote me on this, but like they're pretty frequent, like UN checkers and like US checkers. Like, and it's clear like the stories come out and like they're not they don't get a lot of traction because it's not a very sexy news story. But like it's clear that like Iran has all the rules. It has. It has definitely statistically decreased the the likelihood of any sort of nuclear risk in Iran. And I mean that we're seeing that just based on like the fact that we don't get coverage on it anymore. Iran and Iraq used to be like the biggest enemies of the US as far as the media was concerned. They're always portraying them as like, you know, awful bad, you know, this is a disaster, but now we don't see anything. And there's also the factor that if we end up changing any of our uh, terms of the deal, then that makes us look like the ones who broke the deal because you can't just add on to it once it's already an established treaty. It's really, well, I mean, U.S. credibility is already effectively decimated already, but this will just, nobody's going to trust the U.S. to follow through on its commitments again ever at this rate. Right, like this is also the start or like one of the starts of like the Trump-Corker feud. Corker being on, I think, a foreign intelligence or like a foreign affairs committee, like yeah. he has a vested interest in like making sure that, you know, the U.S. is still seen favorably abroad as favorably as it possibly can be now. And like has a vested interest in making sure that like Iran isn't doing anything suspicious or that like things are flowing in the right direction. So like, which is kind of like where we see Corker saying, you know, is there, you know, is the adult daycare working at the White House still? Yeah. Um, so like I was listening to this podcast, it was really interesting because it was, they, it was not trying to stop I listen to other podcasts, all right? Um, and they were saying that, like, you know, Corker is... Corker and, like, Republican leadership and Democratic leadership, really, like, they are the last, like, defense for, like, foreign affairs, like, foreign... Like, our foreign allies and, you know, our enemies, too, like, to say, like, is there... Are there competent people working in Washington right now? So if you have people like Corker standing up and saying, hey, stop undermining the Iran deal, you are an adult baby, basically, like that gives us a little bit of, you know, added quote unquote star power on the, on the world stage. Obviously, you know, foreign policy is dictated by the president, but if we can help to, you know, undermine the president and his statements by saying, well, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, you are in the wrong here, well, you know, that's the best we can possibly get out of this awful administration. Alright guys, so that's pretty much it for all the stories we have for you. Uh, we will see you guys back in just a second with our special guest. Yeah. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Uh, in the studio with us today we have Saurabh Sharma. He is an officer uh, with the uh, UT branch of Young Conservatives of Texas and he's going to come talk to us about gerrymandering. Saurabh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you guys for having me on. Um, like Marco said, I'm an officer in the Young Conservatives of Texas. Uh, when he reached out to me, he asked me kind of where I fall ideologically, and I think the best two-word answer to that is constitutional conservative. And to briefly go into what that means to me, it means I believe we should be governed by documents, not people. People tend to be susceptible to corruption and personal interests above the uh, good of society. And so today what I wanted to talk about was uh, gerrymandering. This is an issue that's very much within the public sphere right now. There's been a Supreme Court case for which oral arguments were recently heard called Whitford v. Gill, uh, and it has to do with partisan gerrymandering, which is unusual because typically the cases that the court has taken up have been cases of racial gerrymandering. Yeah. But uh, this one's a little bit different, and in it the plaintiffs argue that there should be a new test that should be used at the Supreme Court level in order to determine 
uh, whether gerrymandering is unfairly partisan, because that's always been the discussion here is partisan gerrymandering is legal, but how partisan can it be without it venturing into being illegal? And so they detail something called the efficiency test. And the idea behind it, and forgive me because it's going to be a little bit of mathematics on an audio podcast that's a little tricky to explain, but essentially, if you have an archetypical election in a congressional district and let's say the Democrat wins with 60% of the vote and the Republican has uh, 40% of the vote, the way the efficiency test works is it measures what are called wasted votes. So a wasted vote would be, first of all, all the votes of the losing candidates. So that's you know, 800,000 in a typical congressional district, let's say 40%, that's uh, 300,000. And also every vote over, you know, 50% plus one that the Democrat would win or the winner. And so those are called wasted votes. And so the idea is in a given state, you add up all the wasted votes of the Democrats and the Republicans. And if there's a major discrepancy, typically above 7%, that is 7% of the electorate's votes are wasted, that is considered an unfair uh, partisan gerrymander. Now, this is something that the plaintiffs have brought, not the court has decided. And this is what the court has always said, that they acknowledge that it is likely that extreme partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional, but they need a test. That's what, how it works in litigatory circles, is you need some sort of test in order to determine if something is illegal. And I just wanted to talk about it today because I think the conversation about gerrymandering uh, often talks about kind of superficial aspects of it, where we really need to get down to the philosophical roots of what groups you want represented in an electorate and what groups are important to preserve. This is one issue where you'll see the NAACP and the GOP on the exact same side of cases because they have similar interests when it comes to the type of districts they want to have. And so I wanted to open it up from there. All right, so this is the case with the Wisconsin uh, GOP. Is it not or is it um, another state? Yes, it's the Wisconsin GOP, okay. and this is precipitated by a state legislature election in which the GOP won, I think, about 48% of the vote and uh, achieved about 61% of the districts. And that other 52% split between Democrats and, like, third-party candidates? It, it was state legislature, so it was mainly just the Democrats. So it was, it was very much, you know, standard binary election. And for the okay. purposes of the conversation, um, it... 52-48 seems about right. Yeah, so a bit skewed then, then you would say for the results of that state of those legislative yeah, seats. Yeah. yeah. So um, I guess my first talking point slash question um, would be that if this case is decided in the way of the Wisconsin Democrats, I think that's the plaintiffs, right? Um, then what changes? What's, what's going to happen? So essentially... Um, what would happen is you'd have a wave of litigation like hasn't been seen in a very long time in the United States. I was actually talking to a um, con law professor that I have, and he mentioned that if the court were to decide that partisan gerrymandering can be measured by this test, you'd have a wave of litigation like happened with you know Brown v. Board of Education, where it'd just be hundreds and hundreds of cases, and it would put a lot of strain on the court. So it would definitely be a landslide case in the history of the court if they were to rule in favor of, uh, of um, the Wisconsin Democrats in this case. But there are some externalities here that need to be accounted for. Using the efficiency test, New York is considered a Republican gerrymander. Um, Illinois, under some metrics, can be considered a Republican gerrymander. As in, like, Republicans are in control, like, as in, or they're, they're, being, they're being gerrymandered mm. out? No, it can they be considered a gerrymander that, that helps the Republicans in the efficiency test model because okay. there's more wasted, quote-unquote, Democrat votes than there are Republican votes. So then the New York, I know that, like, the state Senate in New York is tied or, like, leans Republican. I think it's, like, plus one, but the House is, like, pretty firmly Democrat, mm -hmm. I think. So like, that would mean that like if those lines would have to be redrawn to be to fit you know that efficiency test, then the state senate would probably flip to the Democrats and Illinois be kind of the same thing, like more democratic advantage. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and and you know in our kind of layman's conception of it, New York doesn't seem like a state where a Republican gerrymander would occur. But that's the thing with any of these tests is that none of them are always a perfect representation of reality, and you need to have a mathematical basis in order to approach this in order for the court to be okay with it. And so, you know, New York being a Republican gerrymander is, you know, something that almost shocks the conscience to think that that'd be the case. Yeah. But it does work out that way because, again, there are aspects of drawing districts that 
result in certain you know, realities where you have urban centers of population that it's very difficult to draw districts that protect communities of interest, which is a term that's used in the conversation about gerrymandering, right. while also being geographically compact, contiguous, and all the other metrics that we consider important. So you were, you were, you were wanting to get kind of into like the moral aspect of it. So, you know, aside from this case, just looking at gerrymandering in general, you were saying that you don't trust people because they have ulterior motives, they have, you know are swayed by different things, variables, votes, things like that. So, do you, in that case, do you support like a, something like a nonpartisan commission to focus on gerrymandering and to redraw these districts if something like a you know a victory for the plaintiff in this case would happen? Or how would you see those districts being redrawn? Like, who would do that? What about so, a computer program, actually. Yeah, yeah. and so that's, I mean, that's, that's what the, that's what these people would use. Yeah. You know, they'd use an algorithm to draw them. And that's the two different uh, models that are considered, right? Some sort of committee that is ex uh, extra to the uh, state legislature or a computer model that can somehow <clears throat> determine these districts. And I think that there's problems with both. So when it comes to the committees, there's two approaches, um, nonpartisan and bipartisan. So bipartisan committees, you appoint equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans, and the idea is that they keep each other in check. Mm -hmm. What you typically see with these committees is that they then exist to protect incumbents because yeah. Republicans yeah. and Democrats can't agree on who should get more party-wise, but they all agree but our good old buddy should yeah. stay in power. Yeah, it's also hard to, you know, understand from like a like a proportional basis. Like, can you imagine, like, is it quite fair for like in Idaho, like Idaho Democrats having like such a like large seat at the table? Obviously it's there to ensure fairness, but like Idaho Democrats are like four out of 30 state Senate seats. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. having an equal number of Democrats or Republicans there, and the same thing in like states like Hawaii or California. Yeah. So like it can yeah. lead to just kind of like Republicans having quote unquote too much power, or Democrats having too much power. So like then you move to like the nonpartisan ones. So what's the issue there? Well, so the issue with the nonpartisan ones is they're usually constructed of. I mean, it, it, the, the issue comes into who makes up this nonpartisan panel, mm -hmm. and you have people with election experts and you know those type of groups, but then. Then we get into the real crux of the matter, which is the philosophical underpinnings of how to draw congressional districts or how to draw um, single member, single representation districts in general, um, as uh, contrasted with systems you see in other countries like Germany, like Britain, that have what are called uh, proportional representation, where the idea is that, um, I'll just detail this in you know sentence, in Germany, for instance, you fill out two ballots. One is uh, for the individual in your district that you want to vote for, and you also vote for a party. And the idea is that uh, once the election finishes, you see the total number of uh, candidates that um, were emerged. Uh, and so let's say 60% of one party, 30% of one, and 10% of another. And then you see the secondary vote people uh, cast for the parties. And you make it so that the Bundestag, which is the legislative body in Germany, matches the party composition. So they actually add seats yeah. until the, that composition matches. Mm. And that's a mixed system. Or you have systems in a lot of European countries where parties keep a list of candidates and people in each district vote for a candidate. And uh, you just fill out the legislature with the top you know, 60 people on the list. There are people who represent the party line. And that's mm. the idea. We're unique in the United States that so we let whoever wants to run under the banner of a party. It's kind of the, the reason people got pissed off at Bernie Sanders, right? Is he right. was never a Democrat, but was yeah. able to run under the Democrat banner, demand Democrat resources, et cetera, et cetera. And so with these nonpartisan committees, you need to decide what it is that matters to you as far as the, um, the congressional districts and what metrics and rules that are drawn. Because one thing the court's been very clear on is that they aren't going to use proportional representation of parties as a metric for that. Mm -hmm. Because there isn't a constitutional argument you can make for, okay, if there's 50% Democrats in the state and 50% Republicans, then the state should have 50% congressional delegations or, you know, 60-40 or, you know, somewhere within that ballpark. That hasn't been a compelling argument to the court in the past, mm -hmm. and it's not the spirit of the electoral system that we've established. Yeah, and, I, and I'd agree with you yeah. there. Like, it's not fair because, like, people stay registered as Democrat for years, even after they've switched to Republicans and vice versa, or, like, they become independents. And that, like, that also, like, 
disenfranchises independents, people that are politically leaning. Like, that's not the right way to go about it. It also doesn't take into account how quickly people change their minds, you know, for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. But, like, it's just not, like, a very democratic system. I think system. also it defeats the point of what a representative democracy is supposed to mean. It's you hold people accountable through elections. Mm -hmm. right. So people do not do things that they know you're not going to like because they want your vote again. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if they automatically just get representation of an equal amount, then they're not going to put forward programs that they know are going to be popular with the American people. And that's yeah. the that's the reason why sometimes you have weak legislatures <clears throat> in countries that have you know these party rosters through which the the legislators are determined because they aren't accountable to a specific set of people, hmm. um, and th and that's why using partisan metrics here is so tricky because um, in order to establish uh, these uh, partisan metrics, one has to assume you would have to create safely democratic or safely republican seats, mm -hmm. which then protects those parties' influence in the area. Whereas, suppose there was a wave election, like in 2010 for the Republicans, <clears throat> the central idea behind partisan, um, partisanly gerrymandered districts in order to proportionally represent the people in a state is the idea that the parties aren't in flux. And you look at states like West Virginia, yeah. or states like, you know, uh, even right now, the, you know, your blue wall, Wisconsin, Michigan, all these states, they're currently having a partisan flux. And mm -hmm. as the party's identity changes, you know, as the Democrat Party decides what direction it wants to go, as the Republican Party hopefully turns away from Donald Trump, um, <laughs> I can hope. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be something that is constantly in flux, and our system isn't reactive enough to be able to adjust to micro changes in partisanship. So we need to look at something else. And that's been kind of the, uh, the tradition of of how to draw these districts is you look to protect so-called communities of interest. Right. But then what are those communities of interest? Right. You know, they can be communities of color, people of a certain socioeconomic class, like, you know, like your quote unquote, like your wealthy suburbs mm -hmm. or like your inner cities, big, huge tracts of farmland, that kind of thing. You know, how do you, how do you define that without it getting like racially motivated and like, you know, fact of the matter is like African-Americans, Hispanics, like they overwhelmingly, or like they disproportionately vote Democrat, you know, affluent, white people in like certain communities like they vote Republican, like how do you do that without, you have a community of interest, but like when they're voting, not as a block, but more as a block than you'd want, like how do you prevent that from getting into like gerrymandering territory where Democrats isolate, you know, inner city communities, urban white liberals, that kind of thing to like consolidate power. Um, it's, always, it's always seemed to me that at least the, the, the two most important variables to focus on drawing districts going forward would be geography and obviously population. You know, we do need to keep equal population sizes within congressional districts, but kind of putting that as much as possible into lines of geography, right? Not drawing these insanely crazy looking districts for the sake of, you know, we want all these people kept together. Because I think in a certain ways you're right, we have to preserve communities and interests that those communities have. But I think just the idea of doing that leads to gerrymandering because like right. you said, Shrub, People have motivations, right? They want that community to have that voting power because they know that that's what's going to get them into office. Right. Because that community is going to support them. And and here's the thing with geography, though. It seems, and that's the thing with the coverage of gerrymandering, is it's very easy to point to a district that's shaped funnily and say, ha ha, look at the gerrymander. Uh, yeah. But that's not always as simple. And you look at certain specific districts like um, there's one that's actually very famous and it gets floated around in a lot of media is one that's shaped like earmuffs and it's two um, large areas that yeah, are connected by actually one. one strip of road. Right. I think John Oliver covers it in his segment mm -hmm. on gerrymandering. Right. And, and he details this, but that's actually considered a favorite district by people who study these type of things because what it does is it protects a Hispanic um, community that is... Uh, contained within that oddly shaped district. Right. And the space in between was actually an African-American community that also has a representative um, that matches their interest. And so the problem is, is that the easiest way to point to a district and say that it's gerrymandered is geography, but that's often the least important aspect of maintaining communities of interest. And so we have a, we have a, uh, we have a conflict here between the easiest way to instinctually think that a district is gerrymandered versus the way that it actually should be constructed, which is the idea of protecting those communities of interest if that is what you decide is the most important metric. And you, you do see you know, ways that this is uh, messed around with, like Chicago, for instance, the, because of the way the urban centers of population concentrate, what they've had to do is they've had to do these spokes that go up from the center of the city, and so they capture inner city, inner city, downtown, 
and then it goes into the suburbs. And so then you have a community that isn't any specific community of interest, but because of geography and having to maintain that population amount, those districts are constructed the way they are. Yeah, like, I, like Texas is at the center of this gerrymandering debate also, like I think in a separate case, which may be like on the racial side yes. as opposed <clears throat> to the mathematics side. So like my district, you know, back home, it's it's like all of the entirety of Laredo, a lot of the valley and like part of, Sa of San Antonio. And like you see there that like it's mainly connected by I-35 and like that I used to be able to point to like until like you mentioned this, like I started realizing like I, I would point at that district and say, you know, it's kind of bizarre looking, but like these are heavily, heavily Hispanic areas and they're represented by a Hispanic congressman that, well, I don't personally love him very much and he's a little bit moderate for my taste. Um, like he does represent, you know, I can confidently say he represents the views of like most of my peers, like people around me, adults. So like we have to, you know, by what you're saying, like we do have to look at the shapes and look at like saying like, well, this district create like has a lot of people of color, has a lot of, you know, white affluent people, whatever you want really. And like just, make sure those communities of interest are protected. But at the same time, like you get into a question of like, what, what defines a community of interest? You know, that's the question we were asking, like, and it's not easy to define that. Is it by race, socioeconomic status? You know, and I want to say on that, do we want representatives that are running in a democracy to represent a black district or to represent a Hispanic district? Right. Like I get the fact that, <clears throat> sorry, that we have to keep those communities together and preserve interests, but there becomes a point where we have, you know, a, a democratic system that focuses on saying like, you're only going to represent people who are going to vote democratic. Right. You're only going to represent people who are going to vote Republican. We get mad at Ted Cruz all the time for coming to Austin <clears throat> and saying, you know, well, the people's Republic of Texas, you know, and, and then there's the people's Republic of Austin. Like if we want a representative that's going to represent our interest as well, then we should have congressional systems that focus on that. Right. I, I think, you know, you were, you're mentioning the earmuff thing. Hispanics and blacks, obviously, you know, they have kind of different interests on certain issues just mm -hmm. because of culture and things like that, stereotypically. But there are also a lot of issues, I think, where they, you know, suffering from income inequality, they right. even poor whites feel. And I think that if we had districts that focused more on geography, focused more on representing diverse groups of people, you would have representatives that come from that system that represent diverse interests. Yeah. Rather than just saying like, oh, this is always going to be held by someone who's a liberal, or this is always going to be held by someone Right, this is the black candidate, this is the Hispanic <clears throat> candidate, they're going to focus on, on yeah. these token issues. Which and on the, on the electoral but, side of that, yeah. we need someone who's going to run on a platform that says, I'm listening to all of you, I'm representing interests of all of you, rather than just saying, you know, well, I only have to cater to these groups of people, or I only have to worry about this. Mm -hmm. Because then we end up just having, you know, people like poor whites or like Hispanics, like other minority groups, they just feel like they're never being they're never being focused on other than the people who look like them right. in Congress. It really takes the competition out of politics and to have real innovation and development, you have to have that competition. Like politics is like a business mm -hmm. in that way. And you know, the Republican getting, Party getting, getting and the Democratic the there. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, no, like these are essentially developed industries that keep on feeding young talent into them, you know, sure. rise up, etc. Yeah. And I keep getting told, you know, the rising stars in the Republican Party, Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio, all these people. <laughs> yeah. We're not we're not fans. <laughs> yeah. But 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 that's that's the interesting thing, right, is that what's characteristic of the United States system of politics is we we're a country that's characterized by intersect intersecting social cleavages. Yeah. And social cleavages are basically, um, I'm getting into wonky political science terms. I'll actually forward No, this. no, feel free. I'll, 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 I'll forward this to my political science professor later and he'll be happy with me. But, but <laughs> So long as he shares on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but, but we're characterized by intersecting social cleavages. So, you know, race is one of them. Gender is one of them. Mm -hmm. Income is one of them. Yeah. But then you look at, especially at the state legislative level where you have really nuclear interests. So... Uh, urban versus rural, close to a river, far away from a river. You know, mm -hmm. there's a there's an old joke in the Texas legislature legislature that whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting, and you see that some of the ugliest fights over legislation in state legislatures are often over things like water rights right. or agricultural rights, and you know, civil assets, and you know, border communities versus uh, communities farther away from the border. What rights should they have? And there's there's so many intersecting social cleavages within American politics that what's characteristic of the United States system is that no single one is dominant. People don't tend to vote with any single social cleavage universally enough for people to be able to point to it and say, Americans vote based on blank. 
right. they don't. And and you can make that argument by saying that you know the Democratic Party bills itself as a party of the poor, and poor whites don't vote overwhelmingly for Democrats. And so we are a country of intersecting social cleavages. And so that's the trickiest thing with these nonpartisan committees that people have proposed is that the exercise that you have to undertake before you create them is what are the metrics by which they should measure a successfully represented. So, so how, how would you how would you kind of, you know, explain that in relations to age in relations to race? Because <clears throat> we see millennials overwhelmingly vote for Democrats. We mm -hmm. see that minorities overwhelmingly vote for Democrats. So how do you kind of, you know, compare that to, to what you just said about there, like there's no large scale block that's just voting for one party. And, and that's, that's yeah. the interesting thing, right, is that we have to contend with holdovers from the civil rights era that were designed in order to protect the representative rights of minorities. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. still a lot of court precedent in place that protects um, the existence of uh, majority minority uh, districts, which are uh, districts that have a um, majority of people being a minority group, African-Americans, Hispanics, etc. Right. And we have to contend with that precedent. And I still think that there are areas in which that uh, is necessary because if you have a state that has an overwhelmingly white population but there is a center of uh, African-Americans or Hispanics, I think there's a reasonable argument to be made that when it comes to interest representation, that that may be one social cleavage that you want properly represented. Um, at the very least for um, kind of basic psychological reasons, people have an innate sense that the people who represent them should look like them. but. I think that there are uh, there are other social cleavages that should be taken into <clears throat> account, and the problem we see is it's starting to get very difficult to distinguish between a racial gerrymander and a partisan gerrymander mm -hmm. because you know African Americans yeah. are so intricately <clears throat> intertwined. Yeah. I want to or rural whites with Republicans. <laughs> yeah, I want to wind it back a little bit to a point you made earlier, uh, say like about overwhelmingly white states with minority centers. Um, the first state that comes to mind, or states like your Mississippi and Alabama's, right? Like they have overwhelmingly white, but there are centers of, especially like African-American, like, you know, areas, I guess what you call like the black belt, right? And like those places, all like those people, all they have really are like their mayors, right? They, are, they overwhelmingly vote for Democratic mayors, usually of color. And like in the state ledge, like they have like maybe two or three representatives maximum and that's it, you know, and their governors and their the other state legislatures, like, they roll over their interests and, like, they steamroll ahead with, like, very socially conservative policies that, like, are not going to benefit them. Economically conservative policies that are not going to benefit them. You may disagree with that, of course. But, um, like, and, but, like, that's not their interest. And that's clearly not what they want because they're voting for Democratic mayors. And, like, if you look down at the district level, they want Democratic senators and Democratic governors, but they're not getting them. Obviously, we don't roll over for a minority, like, and, I'm, and I mean, like, a minority in a percentage way. Right, you know, if it's if the vote only ends up being twenty percent, you know, we're not going to roll over for that. But what is the solution if, like, the vote ends up being twenty percent, but like the state legislature isn't even twenty percent Democratic? Then what's the solution there? Well, I think one reality that we have to contend with when thinking about this is people more so than ever tend to congregate in areas that believe the same way they do, and this is kind of the fool's errand of trying to create districts in general. Is that, let's say, you have a map laid out but people are mainly moving into one specific district. Well, it's not as if you can slightly modify the current map you have. You need to almost redraw the whole thing because the changes radiate outwards and almost every district has to end up looking differently based on the new population. And we only do this every 10 years, but frankly, the level of population movement in the country probably it needs to be adjusted for uh, and doing that more often, but censuses happen every 10 years and so that's the rate we do it at. Um, I think that I think the tricky aspect of this is is we need to there's there's a moral question in that do we consider it bad if there are 20% democrats in a state but let's say two out of the 16 uh, congressional uh, delegation members are democrats for instance so so what i would say to that and this is something that i i went to a convention political convention this past summer and um, the first class I went to was talking about voting rights and the idea of like multi-member districts and stuff like that and uh, something that the guy brought up was it's, it's not the idea that, you know, in the legislature right now you have, like, you know, two out of the 16 as opposed to 20%. It's the idea of whether or not that 20% population has the possibility of electing people who represent their interests, which I think is the caveat here. It's, 
it's not that like you know let's say the republicans have you know a sweeping majority because of you know midterms and they take back all a bunch of state legislators that's fine that's politics but it's the idea can those liberal leaning people in any way shape or form possibly gain equal representation which i think is the caveat here and why i'm so against the idea of gerrymandering because that's that's completely what it fights against is the idea that it, it gives people no chance whatsoever to ever even gain close to equal representation. And so that's the thing, right? So there's two types of gerrymandering. There's two terms, cracking and packing, which yeah. I find yeah. endlessly yeah. amusing. <laughs> <laughs> but cracking, for instance, is uh, breaking up minorities yeah. uh, or any group really <clears throat> into a bunch of different districts in order to dilute their voting potential or putting them all into yeah. 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 <laughs> or putting them all into one district in order to cement the uh, benefits of, of single districts in order to make them less competitive. Yeah. Or beneficial to incumbents. There's a couple different reasons it can be done. And so, based off of what you said, it sounds like your conception of a moral system of districts would be uh, where communities of interest are packed into districts where they are capable of electing a member that represents them. Uh, and that is definitely one approach to take about it. And it's, I think it's the approach that I lean more towards because no matter what those interests are, we have to contend with the different uh, intersecting social cleavages. And so um, there's a couple of examples that can be made. So when it comes to an inner city type situation where you have uh, historically poor communities that tend to be minorities, I think that there is something to be said for having uh, Congress people elected in a way uh, based off districts that are drawn in order to preserve those interests. However, when you move out to say a rural area, I think that there, uh, you know, um, here's an example, there's a military base in that area. There needs to be one Congressman representing that military base, otherwise you're gonna have a fracturing of that voting potential. <coughs> and you see this in Congress, actually. You see Congress people who have a very specific group that they're trying to protect and that they rely on to vote for them, and they vote in order to do that. When budgets come up, they add budget riders in order to benefit right. those communities. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if it's a you know poor mining town, they'll advocate for you know, uh, an increased level of investment from the federal government or decreased coal regulations, et cetera, et cetera. I think that using one metric across the board for what constitutes fair representation is a folly because as I said earlier in this country, we have intersecting social cleavages. And this is a conversation that always needs to be happening because the fundamental problem is, is that people are always moving around. People move from one state to another. It's all Texas. in certain states. Exactly. Um, there was some video I saw in preparation for this where it, the guy, you know, t tries to straw man the, uh, the liberal, uh, the, the liberal behavior in the situation. He says, you know, liberals tend to congregate in these, um, you know, dens of communism that they create. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you watch this video on Prager University's YouTube channel? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I like Dennis Prager a lot. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alright, let's go ahead and start the wrap up here. Let's go to final thoughts across the board. Starting with Rob. Sure, so, so I think that my main goal when bringing up this topic was to inspire conversation. I think that Gerrymandering is one of those conversations that the way it becomes salacious has almost nothing to do with whether or not it's an issue. I.e., oh look, it's a funny shaped district. Mm -hmm. It's shaped like a salamander, which is interestingly what gerrymander comes from. Right. And so the conversation needs to be deconstructed a little bit, where we need to talk about what are the groups that we believe should be represented above all else. And that's not the conversation that's happening these days. And when I first started elucidating this to friends of mine, they really started to think because that's not the conversation we have. And geographical compactness almost seems like the least important thing in this situation. Yeah. Um, there's obvious reasons why you want districts to be contiguous, but honestly, I'm in favor of a district shaped like a salamander if it actually preserved the interest of the community. And I think that this also you know, dovetails into another conversation we need to have as Americans where we've started to think more and more along racial lines where that is going to damage our democracy more than anything else because there are groups like, you know, Hispanics, they vote for Democrats, but they don't vote overwhelmingly for Democrats. It's what, 60-40 is the last time I right. saw? It's something like that. And even Hispanics, we look at that as a monolith, but Cuban Americans vote drastically more for Republicans compared to uh, other groups. And so being, being less focused on race while also considering it an important factor and then identifying what are the interests that Americans vote on 
is much more um, a productive conversation than what we've been having until now, where it's, haha, look at the funny-shaped district. And I think as the Supreme Court precedent rolls out, it's going to be a big change in this country because we're finally going to have to contend with the idea that, at least in the current status quo, you know, politicians are always going to be looking to preserve their own interests. That's what politicians do. But as you know, informed voters, we can vote for candidates who believe in representing um, you know, different constituencies uh, while you know, not trying to advance one constituency's interests over another and trying to balance them. Okay, I think it's a good place to end it. So Rob, thank you for, so much for coming yeah. out to the show. Thank you. I think it was a very interesting discussion, probably the best one we've had so far in the pod. Well, that's, yeah. that's all I need then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't have my Facebook timeline. Best yeah, discussion absolutely. on a lefty podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so um, thanks for listening. Uh, be sure to come back uh, li- and listen next week. Uh, we'll have another guest star probably uh, talk about something else. Okay, thanks for listening. Thank you.